College of Health and Human Sciences has what what I would call, from one perspective, an eclectic gathering mm-hmm. of discipline. Mm-hmm. From another perspective, I would call it a, a collection of focal areas that that share some like really important common themes around humanism. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague from the School of Education, Dr. Vincent Basile. Tickled to have you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, Vincent, of course, I had the pleasure of getting to know you as a teacher and a mentor with Gabriel Navarro's thesis, and that was a real joy to be able to watch you uh, in that setting. Uh, and as, as we both know, which is kind of a fun spinoff of Gabriel's story, is there was a family connection there as well. Right. right? Yeah. Right. So Gabriel's grandfather is my wife's uncle. Oh, wow. So we were, uh, you know, quite, and she was just over the moon when I said, guess what? <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that was, it was quite a bit of fun. And, and uh, I quickly gathered a, a immense amount of respect for how you handle your students. That was oh, a, a fun experience for me. Yeah, so. that was a good one. Yeah. It was. Yeah. There, you know, and it's a microcosm of why we're here, isn't it? Right? Yeah. I mean, in every sense of the That's word. Right. And one of the things I've always enjoyed about this college is, is those opportunities to sit on committees that aren't in your home department. Mm-hmm. I think it, again, expands our vision. It helps us become better as, as teachers and mentors and how we yes. interact with people. So thanks yeah. for letting me be part of that. that was yeah. Really fun. Yeah. That was a really good time. And I, and I agree with your sentiment, too, that um, having those opportunities to um, connect across across departments and see how. Um, other people, particularly when you're brought in in support of a student that is doing work that maybe is similar to to your line or, um, you know, you have some um, some connection to that student and you see how another department is embracing that kind of topic, that kind of work, something that they don't normally do. It's really powerful in that, like you said, it really broadens your scope, but it sees the connectivity you know, as we're so siloed in in the academy in general um, and to, to see to see that really by discipline is one way you can organize an academy, but also you can rethink it by organizing by you know your, your focal areas, the strands, epistemologies, all those kinds of things. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes through just human connection, which I think is pretty powerful too. Yeah, and you know, uh, putting borders or fences on our imagination or our interests never really works. I don't think, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We always wind up hanging out at the edges. Of exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we're, we're interested in talking about a number of things. Your scholarly activities, but also you as a, as a person, right? Your educational pathway. And so I want to start with, with an on-campus kind of perspective and ask you to share, when we think about big problems, what, what are you tackling as a scholar that you, you would consider to be big problems and what's the impact that you hope your work will have? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that, that framing the question too, because too often people want a siloed elevator speech, right? And, and they want something that is indicative of something like, um, where do you fit? What's your paradigm? What's your pedigree? What's particularly interesting for me about having to answer questions like that is that most of my my work is situated in disrupting that in the first place. So it's always a weird thing to try and fit, you know, <laughs> to like 
you know, because really what I want to say is like, let's talk about the problems with your question, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, thinking about thinking about like where where my work situates with regard to like social issues and those big problems, the, the easy way to open that up is is to say that my my work is really situated at the confluence of issues of um, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, and education. But specifically, it's really situated in um, in the foundationally in a racial frame. And it's situated in, a, in really deconstructing a lot of systems and structures that exist, uh, you know, just underneath the surface of most of our daily lives. And so while, e- you know, even though I am situated in education and um, some would argue, you know, decidedly situated in K-12 education, um, I, I really see my work in that big issue. It's really situated in deconstructing like, social paradigms that, that perpetuate the inequalities that we we live in in our daily lives, and it's not situated in the psychology of that. It's not situated in in the individual um, contributions to that. It's situated in the systems and structures, right? You know, so the very beginnings of my work might start with questions of like, how come how come people perpetuate oppression like accidentally or not on purpose or every day without thinking about it? How come how come people who are oppressed replicate that? You know, these kinds of questions that seemingly don't really make a lot of sense if you just step back and think about it for a mm-hmm. second. If we take one step forward in that, you know, a, a lot of the work that I do is around diversification in the K-12 teacher workforce. Um, it's around deconstructing and decolonizing our education spaces, K-12 and higher ed. And it's around uh, understanding the experiences that boys of color have in educational systems. Uh, I've done some really specific work in elementary ed, but really the frameworks that I use extend across all educational sp- uh, spaces and settings. And I, I had the chance to watch a TED talk you gave a while back That's around right. the sort of you know teenage boys of color mm-hmm. who, who sit in this frame of, of a maybe a knee jerk, almost a criminalization attitude towards them, not, not by virtue of behaviors, right, right, but by virtue of the way they look. Yep. So tell me yeah. a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that TED talk was um, those are really pivotal moment for me um, because that was a point in which I was able to bring some of the the voices from paper and publication to um, you know to presentation really and uh, that experience was awesome because not only did I was able to honor those voices of of, uh, my participants in that research but also I was surrounded by a lot of other really awesome people at that at that um, TED talk uh, convention Um, but that that talk in particular um, was a culmination of a longitudinal research study that I, I had done, um, a pretty robust one across over about a year and a half. And um, what really came out of that research were two, two big components of that reveal. One was that um, boys of color in elementary school settings were dealing with this like very ordinary, like regular normative criminalizing experience in school. So they would just come into school and it didn't matter. And any of the nuances that changed from day to day for them or who they were as individuals, just that, that because of who they were and what they look like, um, how they dressed, their name, that sort of thing, they were just subjected to these really oppressive measures, you know, and, and some of them were kind of obvious, right? You know, like they're the ones that maybe might be easy to think about, but a lot of them were these really sort of subtle nuanced differences, the ways that the adults in the building automatically treated them, the ways that conversations happened about them. And what what really what stuck out to me years later, you know, now that I've published quite a bit on that research and spoken about it and professional development about it, what really sticks out to me is how um, how normative some of that stuff is. And what I mean is that 
there are a lot of people, teachers and adults, et cetera, that maybe at first, when they first hear this, they, they're, they're, you know, if we start discussing some of these oppressive measures, they think like, well, yeah, that's just how it is. That's what they need. Or it's very normal. It, it's so normal. And, and when they start doing some of the work around deconstructing that, hearing them talk a few hours later about, I can't believe I thought that was okay, mm-hmm. is, is, is what really sticks out to me that we're in a society where we have so many systems and structures that just indoctrinate us with this from day one that we don't stop and we move so fast, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Especially in education. We move so fast that we never stop and think, uh, this is not okay. Right. Mm-hmm. This, this is not OK at all. Actually, once you kind of see it, there's really easy stuff you can do. And some teachers do it. And basically, the younger the kid, the more effective and quicker it works. You know, it, it, and we might think about that as like before students get really disillusioned, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, that that we can impact stuff pretty early. And it's it's a bit opposite of how we've been treating things, honestly. Right. Because we've kind of started with like, oh, OK, like we've got all these boys of color that don't graduate from high school. So we'll start interventions at like. 11th grade, right? Way too late. Yeah. Yeah, way too late. It's I remarkable. Yeah. It? Oh my gosh. Stuff needs to start way earlier. And it's actually pretty cool. Um, like I, I said, I have seen, um, I've seen plenty of teachers, some of whom are just in there fumbling around. They know something's not right, and so they're trying to fix it. And they're fumbling around, and they don't always know exactly what they're doing, but they keep doing it because because the impact is, like, so immediate. You know that yeah. uh, there's so many students that it's just having having a relief from from that constant oppression for a day is it's like getting you know they get a breath and then and they're in you know yeah and they know there's some fresh air out there yeah 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 right. that's exactly right hmm. now now I have to ask you your own educational journey because you know your academic pursuits are are, are placing a lens on a road that you yourself have trod. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So talk to me about your own journey. How, how did you get here? Well, it, you know, to that tune, my um, my own K-12 education was um, lackluster, let's say. I think my first my first positive memory of a teacher, I don't think it was until my junior year of high school that I ever even like had a teacher who I generally thought was a decent human being to me. Wow. Um, oh and where was know? this? So yeah, I grew up in uh, Baltimore, oh, okay. surrounding areas. Yeah, okay. and so um, yeah, like I I have I have like really when I go and dig back through my elementary school memories, I have I have like um, really interesting memories that were normal. You know, like I said, they were kind of just just sort of normal to me. When I go back and look at it, and I think like, wow, that's really you know like what, um, and some of them are fragmented. So, you know, I have, I have a memory of of like uh, I think in second grade where. Um, I, I, I think I had basically the equivalent of an argument with my teacher about, the, you know, some answer about something. Some, and it was some scientific thing. And I'm fairly certain that I was correct about it. You know, I just, you know, I knew stuff from all the, you know, I always had my nose in, into sciencey stuff when I was a kid. And so I just knew, I knew that what was on this piece of paper wasn't correct. And so then I had to spend a, a huge amount of time, many, many days. I, I don't really remember how long, but I, I just sit in the back of the room with a row of empty seats in front of me. And so I, and I was all the way back there for, for a very, very, very long time for effectively um, being disrespectful. Huh. Right. You know, and, and that was the whole issue was it wasn't whether or not I was right. It was, that I was disrespectful about it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, 
And I think I, I, I have like memories too of asking clarifying questions about things and being sent to the office for it, you know, and, and they're all, you know, like I don't have like the, you know, I don't have an adult context to those memories. Sure. Yeah. But um, hell, I remember, I remember hating going to school, but I remember, um, I remember like really loving learning about things, you know. What a mm. juxtaposition. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. yeah. And that's, the, you know, I, I think that paradigm sort of still exists for me as a, as a scholar, too, that I, I really spend a lot of time trying to reconcile how, um, how schools cannot be places of oppression, you know, for really a, a lot of different groups of people and, and individuals. Um, I think there's a lot of people that, that find going to school every day to be not a place of care or learning or protection, but a place of oppression. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's particularly when you put that in the context of it being compulsory, mandated by law, right? Particularly when you're in an environment where um, where the police are not consistently and culturally um, represented in your community as um, as being functional to your protection, but rather being there to um, to control you or to police you or whatever. You know, when you put that, so you know, you feel like the police are upholding a law that doesn't function for you, and the law is com- is forcing you to go to a place that feels oppressive to you it's hard to reconcile then how to um how to think about that same place as being a place to like engage students you know and, and so like particularly when it comes to like science and mathematics education um I, I i still struggle with that in in like my theoretical positioning on it you know it's like is this going to happen by some tweaks that we do you know in like the classroom or in our curriculum i don't think so you know yeah. So, so at some point there was this decision, I'm going to college, right? And again, was, was that a, a pathway that, that followed this consistent story we're talking about that was also maybe a manifestation of, uh, you've already talked about this almost inchoate love of learning, and I just haven't been able to channel it. And Yeah. So, so talk to me more about, all right, so I'm, I'm going somewhere and I'm going to study yeah. something, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the. Winding up, winding up in college is, is a really sort of interesting, weird thing for me because it, it follows that that same sort of that same sort of notion. Um, I ran track and field in high school, and I connected really well with my team. You know, so I had good friends on my team. You know, so a lot of them were were kind of already going to college. So there was like a that was starting to get normalized to me. But I didn't really think I was just surviving day to day. You know, so I didn't really I didn't really think I didn't have my together. I don't know what I was doing. But there's there's these three components that, are, that I think are actually really really interesting to, to sort of think through and reflect back on. One was my senior year, instead of putting me in calculus, I think, I think Calc 2 maybe or something like that, I had made, um, I've been a problem in Calc 1. And so <laughs> they, they put me in this, um, in this like experimental um, GT class for science and math students. And I was like the only or maybe one of two seniors in there. And in that class, among other things, they also, they, they took me to this... Um, this like, I don't know, uh, conference or something. And, uh, and then they hooked me up with like some folks at, at the national zoo. And I went and visit. And, and so, you know, again, it was like, really, I didn't really know what was happening. They're like, you should, you should do this. And, you know, like th- this is like animal behaviorism stuff. Like you'd be good at this. I was like, all right. So, you know, and so like on Sundays for a little while, I, I drove down there and they had this like really structured kind of like, you know, like early scientist kind of thing or whatever. And, hmm. So I like basically was like, you know, back behind behind the, the scenes of the, in the primate labs down there. And 
I, you know, I just fumbled around and, you know, did some stuff. And then I, you know, I put on a poster and they presented it. And, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not over exaggerating when I say that I was like, I was just fumbling around, you know, <laughs> I was like, well, it's really cool. You know, it's, and I would just engage stuff. And so, so we did that. And, uh, you know, and, um, I remember some folks were like the judges that came by or whatever were like, you know, gave me all these positive comments. And, um, and then uh, there was a person from uh, Franklin and Marshall College, which is where I, where I ultimately went. Um, it was a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania. And uh, um, this scientist there was like, hey, we've got, you should come to this school because we've got this, um, this primate lab with Reese McCacks. We do all these like, you know, it does experimental work. And I was like, that's awesome. And, uh, and so they like gave me a, a packet or whatever. I don't even know where the place was, you know. I didn't know where any college was. So I just gave me the name and thing. Great. Um, and, and that was, that was seed one. Seed two was when my, my high school coach called me into his office and asked me if I was going to college. And, uh, and this, th- this dude, um, Al Dodds, he's retired. He still coaches. He's awesome. Um, I still am in touch with him every now and again. That's great. Yeah. And he, um, you know, like we weren't tight. He, but he just treat me like a human every day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's like super respectful. And um, and my track team was really good. Uh, you know, the cross country team won the state championship. And then when we were like second or third or something in track. And so we had all these like really great runners. And, you know, I was a contributor, but I wasn't the, the best runner on this team. But he still, he still looked out for me. And so after all these other star guys were kind of taken care of with college, he just asked me if I wanted to go somewhere. And I was like, oh, I don't, you know. And so he just wrote down a list and he was like, Go, you know, go in the library and like look them up. You're going to have to call these coaches because they're not going to know about you because um, you're not the superstar on the team, but you're good enough. And so, you know, get in contact with these people and, and see. And, and so like there was this, uh, there was a nice list and Franklin Marshall was on that list too. Right. So my mind, you sure. know, I'm like, oh, you know, here, here's my cross reference. Right. Um, and the end piece on this, the, the, the third component that really actually made it happen was my English teacher, um, Roger Crawley, same kind of thing. Like we weren't really close or anything, but he was just, he was like a, a humanizing educator. Um, and I found out later he, um, one of the reasons why he taught and did what he did, um, he, he was older, gay, and had been through a whole lot of shit because of his identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he lived with his longtime boyfriend in, um, basically in secret and in our community, um, but was this pillar for the LGBTQ plus community at my high school. And so anybody who identified as part of that community would find a way into his class. It was all very secret. You know, I didn't really figure it out to the end even, but mm-hmm. um, the fact that you know, basically I was just tagging along for the humanizing experience. Mm-hmm. So I had him junior year and then senior year, I got assigned somebody different. So I wanted to see my counselor, you know, and I was like, I need to get into this class. And my counselor who was absolutely horrible to me was like, you know, absolutely not. We're not doing this. You, you know, we don't switch classes for that reason. You know, it's, it's this whole, you have to have a medical reason or yes, you know, she's like nothing short of a medical reason. reason. So I forged a note with, uh, with one of my parents' signatures and, and my doctors, <laughs> I forged both of those signatures, just gave it to the counselor. And, and, and I can't even remember what, what the cause was, but somehow, I mean, that, that's, I, I didn't even care that like, I'd, you know, I'd get in so much trouble because I didn't even care, but it worked and they, they put me in 
Roger Crawley's class and Roger Crawley was, you know, as predicted, was very decent. And then one day on my way out from class, he just stopped me. And again, we, we weren't close or anything. He just stopped me and just asked me if I was going to college. And I shrugged my shoulders and, and he was like, oh, come here, come here, come here. Where do you want to go? And, uh, and I was like, I don't even know. You know, we had this, this relatively brief conversation and he told me like, come back at some other time. And he said that they just started doing this thing like a common app and, uh, you know, there's like, you know, the stuff and you can do whatever. And so I just came back and he just, I didn't even know what, how it all went, but he just helped me fill out the application. Um, and he was like, where do you want to send this? And I pulled out the folder, I had my backpack and I was like, Franklin and Marshall College. <laughs> and so I, I applied there and got accepted and that's where I went. Wow. Yeah. It just kind of all worked out. And so they just sent the thing and it showed up and I didn't even know how to register for classes or anything. They were just, my first semester I just had random classes because I didn't know how to not register. And the interesting fun side note is that I did not become an animal behaviorist because I couldn't find the lab. No kidding. Wow. Because that, that professor that I talked to told me when, you know, she was like, when, if you come, like she came and she's like, come down to the lab. That's where my office is. And, and I'll, I'll get you set up. Cause we have, it's a, it's a special program. It's a separate thing. And it turned out, I found out later it was off campus, but I didn't know. Huh. And I didn't know there were, I didn't even know there were campus maps. We didn't even have, I just, I wandered around. And after two semesters, I mean, I, I you know, it wasn't like I was doing that every day. Sure, sure. I just didn't know how college worked. And, you know, first semester, I was just trying to keep my head above water. And second semester, I really made an effort like, you know, four or five times. Um, I was too embarrassed to ask anybody. Wow. What's fascinating is that your experience seems atypical within a group of scholars, but I feel like more students can relate to your experience than the stereotypical third, fourth generation right. yeah, story. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. Yeah, I think the only difference is that, you know, just a lot of, like I said, you know, a lot of doors kind of open up that I stumbled through. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's, that's it. So you have to tell us now what you ended up majoring in as an undergraduate. <laughs> I um, curiosity's got the best of us. Yeah. Right? So I wound up majoring in anthropology. I I did a bunch of work in classics stuff first, which is a really interesting kind of way. You know, I, I sort of I sort of just plowed through some of those courses early, and I found them. I don't know. I guess I just sort of found them interesting. But that ultimately led me towards anthropology. But really, um, for me, the defining moment was when I I took a course. Where I, where I was really applying a whole lot of like knowledge around DNA and um, evolutionary processes and all that animal behavior stuff. And so, you know, I was like, oh, well, this is, this is right, right in line. Um, and then when it started to intersect with um, social research, social behavior, um, you know, and starting to understand the beginnings of these systems and structures, that's when I really, really got interested. Um, my advisor, who I, I wound up sort of late in my collegiate career getting connected with my advisor, Professor Michael Billig, I, I took uh, a theory class with him. And uh, uh, that's probably when I first became a theorist was that um, I, I just sat in the class and like ate it up and, <laughs> you know, and was like challenging everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was, I, I'm sure I was a pain in his ass. <laughs> but he like he he honored every every everything that I I came up with he you know he was encouraging of mm -hmm. instead of shutting it down and that's I think that's really where some of like you know my notions that like hmm, like things it's not that things just are things are you know for reasons and histories and contexts and that first led me to be wanting to become a K twelve teacher and then later a researcher and theorist. So tell me a little bit more about that, this journey from undergraduate student in anthropology to at some point I'm, I'm going to graduate school. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, um, 
I fumbled around quite a bit after um, after graduating, and uh, started to have this notion that I wanted to teach, and you know it, it was this meandering path that ultimately brought me out to Colorado, and I wound up again kind of kind of just just like actively like looking and stuff, but really sort of stumbling through stuff. But I I, I found like like the an MA plus program at UC Denver that really that fit well um, with what I was interested in, and they really. Uh, you know, the, a lot of um, philosophical alignment with with what I wanted to do and where I was at, and uh, so I I enrolled in that, and they just had the they had the right kind of flow for me, and so I I crushed that. Like I, it was a year and a half program, and I finished it in a year because I because that summer I figured out how to take something like twenty four credits or something during Ooh, the summer. Like I, I, I was in class for twelve hours every day, six days a week yeah. during the summer. Wow, they just the schedule worked out for it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. but I was so into it. So I just I would just pack my bag and ride my bike to the bus, take the bus to the, the you know, the, the, the whole production thing. And then and I finished and they they um, instead of having a valedictorian, they have like an outstanding graduate award, which I got as well. And, it, you Good know, and you. I, yeah, I was like I was just doing me, you know, like yeah. I, I wasn't striving for that kind of stuff. But but that stuff was all transformative. Um, and that, you know, that, that led me to my first teaching jobs. I taught middle school and high school for about eight years. Um in the region here. Yeah, in the region here mm-hmm. in Colorado. Mm-hmm. But during that time, I was I was like they I never like got disconnected with um, with higher ed. So I was like always working with professors and, and taking classes and all that sort of stuff. Um, when I decided to pursue my PhD, which I did at, at CU Boulder, I I was already I was sixty credits plus past my master's at that point, just from because I was just always taking these courses and just doing stuff. And and they you know I had funding for it, so. I, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, let, let's keep going. You know, a lot of it was like research based or connected with what re- work professors were doing. And I wouldn't really pay attention, you know, but it, it, it took me there. Um, and CU Boulder has this um, really profound program called the Mitomontes Scholars Program um, that, that supports uh, emerging scholars who are doing work in areas of social justice and racial justice. Um, and it was like to the thought of not having to explain what I was doing and why I was doing it, you know, because at this point I spent like whatever, like eight years constantly explaining to administrators why we can't use these like capitalist paradigms, why we can't use these like um, these like sit in your chair and don't move frameworks to teach. Yeah. It just doesn't work, you know. Um, and, you know, and it, during the time I see that, I'd, I'd, I'd seen so much horrible stuff, you know, that I, I realized I wasn't going to, successfully make a change you know and and really anytime i tried to advocate for change i'd i'd get targeted you know i'd get like just like shut down really internally you know um and so so i realized that any kind of impact for change means that you got you know, we got to go one level up so we were lucky enough to have a job opening that was timing right for you to be able to recruit you here yeah the the um timing which seems to be the story of my life is that the timing of working out that opening was part of of a diversity cluster hire that csu was experimenting with which was also a really big part of of what brought me here and why i'm here too you know so the school of ed and and chhs was making a commitment to to really up in their game with that kind of work and so that was really meaningful too because previous to um to arriving at cu boulder i got pretty tired of being the only one and once i got to cu um, that's when I realized what it meant to be in community with people who are doing this work, people who share these identities, um, and, and how much of a relief it was and, and uplifting and empowering. And so when the opportunity was to, 
you know, to start working, to, to be a professor in community with folks too. Like that was really a really thoughtful, purposeful thing um, that I think CSU engaged in, but also something that was really, um, it was really meaningful for me because I wasn't sure that I could go back to being alone. You know, one thing that, that is just singing to me in terms of listening to you talk is, is this notion of a love of learning. Yeah. Tell me what that means to you. Yeah. I think sort of early on, um, I, I, felt, I felt like a sense of like discovery and, and curiosity that like, you know, sort of inherent in like many little kids, you know. Sure. And I think maybe I, I kind of stayed a little kid a little bit longer than, than some others. Um, but I really felt like if I think back to being young, I felt a sense of empowerment from being able to understand a thing. And to me... Um, and some of that, some of that, I think, is rooted in um, in some of this, some of the social structures that we were talking about before. You know that there's there's power in understanding how things work, not just the world around you, but how they work. You know, and like why they work the way they work, and you know, allows you to navigate that space. But there's also a lot of power too um, with regard to things like um, like stewardship. You know, I think I think it's a lot easier for me to take care of. Um, the world around me or take care of my community or take care of my backyard with a deep understanding of how it all works, mm-hmm. you know, and how it works together and why it is the way it is. And I think later in life, um, that's been, that's been a real point of um, relief for me and a place for hope is that with learning comes revelation and comes, you know, empowerment and comes hope. And, and I think also there's a certain sense of it that, relieves the nihilism that might come from doing the kind of work I do anyways, mm-hmm. right? That it's, it's incredibly difficult to authentically do the work that I do, which is, you know, basically around like dealing with these large, these like robust systems and structures that are rooted in like historical oppression. You know, we're talking like, you know, hundreds of years, right. Of, 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 um, built systems, um, deal with those every day is, is hard. It, it's draining, right. It's, it's, it's mentally difficult. Um, and I find I find a lot of a lot of hope, and I find a lot of reprieve from that by um, being able to be at peace with knowing that I'm like also always learning and and understanding things that maybe are related to this and maybe aren't directly related to it, you know. And and to me, that's the kind of thing like as an instructor, you know, as a teacher, I try to really pass it on to my advisees and to my students in class. You know, I have I have a son that I have a very close connection with, and same same thing is that I care less about what he learns or like what he thinks and more about that he's learning and that he's thinking and just say uh, breakfast is fun at our house. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Well, this is a perfect segue because it anticipates my next question. We want to talk about Vince outside of the academy a little bit. Where do you find your joy? What are some things that you find relaxing or or just recreational pursuits, whatever it might be? We get to know you a little bit better in that sense as well. Yeah. um, When I really strip it down, I, I, I was maybe um, maybe at some point in my life I was I was a pretty complex, um, pretty complex person outside of outside of my work and uh, you know I along with learning I also took a lot of pride and a lot of joy in um, experimenting and, and and trying new things and learning new things and so I'm one of those professors that drifts away and takes up something like like takes it to a certain level of mastery and then it's like all right next thing right and so to that extent you know i've played a lot of different sports done a lot of different outdoor activities um i've gotten into a lot of like indoor pursuits um 
you know, like, you know, everything from like, you know, puzzles or, you know, um, you know, deep dives into like complex games and things like that. Sure. And, you know, and, and like, it's the same thing. I tend to like, I'll get into it and then I want to know how it's, how it's made and how it works and how it does it, you know, yeah. and, um, that sort of thing. And as I, as I've kind of gotten older and I've started to get a little tired and needed to slow down a little bit, um, a very interestingly for me is that having gone, you know, gone all over the place, I guess I proverbially, I found my way back home. So I spent a lot of my time now, um, when I have free time, I, I maintain my mental and physical health, um, running and, and competing. And I still, I still do masters track and field races and I still sit down and play a game, you know, once in a while, my, my family, you know, we'll, we'll do all, all different kinds of games and stuff too. Um, but that, that's sort of our, that's our quiet reprieve point. Um, yeah. Is your son ready to race you yet? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's funny ask cause really, I think, um, this, this past fall, probably I'm going to, I'm going to, if I put a timestamp on it, I'm going to say, I think September of 2021 is where he started to be faster than, than me, uh-huh. or, um, than maybe, you know, than I ever was in, in some events. And does he find the same joy in it? Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, he's. Um, and I, 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 I take a lot of, of interest in the fact that I, I've tried not to push him, you know, towards, towards anything. But, um, you know, it's probably that combination of genetics and upbringing that he's, you know, he's um, gravitated his way towards some of the same stuff that I have. Mm-hmm. And all of it's really about him just empowering to to get the most out of it and enjoy it and do what he loves or whatever. And, um, so yeah, he's 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 really into those things too, and he's you know he's into science and math and learning and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's he gets angry and pissed off at the same social structures that I do too. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, you know, I, I take a lot of joy in that. You know, if if I just if I like think about those other kind of like little little tidbits that inform who I am, you know, I'm into and like really interested in classic anime, and it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's like influences on yeah. culture. I'm a huge uh, like golden age hip hop head. Uh-huh. Like I was around Baltimore, like in the eighties, you know, when things came up, sure. so I, you know, you'll find me with a nice shoe collection around and, you know, <laughs> um, you know, like my, my style choices tend to, I tend to try to keep a little bit of flair in, uh-huh. in what I do. Um, so I know folks can't, can't see, but you might oh, describe nice. my custom oh, yes. Air Force Ones, which of course say PhD on the oh, back. Oh wow, <laughs> that's incredible! Cool. Yeah. I was gonna mention the, I was gonna mention the forces. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, that's awesome. but that's yeah, that, that, that's kind of how I roll. You know, some like music, music is a big part of my psyche, hmm. my identity. Um, you know, it's always playing in my house. You know, that sort of thing. Um, and you know, much you know. Like for anybody who knows these kinds of histories, they won't be surprised too that like some classic kung fu films are also like sure. yes. at the heart of like where where I gravitate back to towards. Um, yeah, but um, music in particular has that um, has that heavily influence. You know, it's it's a big part, a big big part of of who I am and how I evolved, and it even it even kind of informs maybe how I approach my social research. Um, it, when when I do sometimes I'll, I'll do little like um, workshops and stuff for for students either my own or sometimes at other other places where some of my colleagues work um, around writing you know talk about rituals and all these practices and stuff and what people are sometimes surprised to to find out that um, I write in I think very much in the same ways that a lot of MCs put their stuff together too and so I um, you know I I quite frequently I I get um, when, when I'm writing, I get 
up for it. You know, I, I kind of, and I, and I always start, I start by getting rhythm into mm-hmm. what I'm doing. And I, I always write with my headphones on and with instrumental hip hop in the background. And so to me, I, to me, you know, I have a DJ who's put down a track and I'm, I'm laying down lyrics on top of it. And anything you ever read that I've written, I, I don't know if anybody else, it might be so embedded that you might not feel it. But if you, if you just, if you like just put on some like J Dill instrumentals and read my work, you would probably feel the flow mm. it, of that paper in that work. It's, That's great. it's always there. Um, you'll, and you'll see, you'll see little quotes and influences and titles and things that are all influenced by hip hop and, and really any, any, any of that connective culture is present there. Who are you listening to when you're creating, when you're teaching? What, yeah. What's the pace? Yeah. Who said um, so, well, so th- this is an interesting question. So what, so the reality of it is like when, when my theory, let's say, so my, my theory construction is very much influenced by public enemy, mm. Wu-Tang, Nas, yeah. You know, big, big parts of that. And that's largely because of that, that confluence of um, lyrical sharpness, good produced beats, but also raw. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. The imperfect. Um, now, when it when it comes to the actual writing process, you'll tend to connect that better. Like I said, you know, Dilla, strong like those like strong smooth jazz infused beats you know things things that that not even just in the lyrics but in in the production value have that social consciousness to it mm-hmm. is is really really important to me you, i think you find me writing to a lot of like talib kwali mos def common there's a certain smoothness that needs to be there so that rough and raw stuff that 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 influences my theory that my theoretical thinking is then is then kind of supplanted with that um, much more jazz infused smoothness that needs to be there when you're communicating, you mm. know, and, and piecing it together. That that really affirms my notion that that you know the connectivity of hip hop culture, our lived experiences, and our theoretical frames are all they're all they're all part of it, you know. Um, and you know, as as I have, I have made arguments that um, long before any anthropologists or sociologists were were digging in deep and, and building these like criminalization conceptual frameworks, right? Like Dead Prez was talking about it. Mos Def was talking about it. Public Enemy were talking about it long before. Yeah. And hell, if, I, if, if, if hip hop, you know, which is a soundtrack of a whole generation, if that isn't a powerful ethnography, you know, then I don't think people really know what ethnography is. Yeah. It's a good thing you're here. One of us has to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we'd lose out on these great questions. So yeah. thanks for that. So, so I want to pull you back onto campus for a couple questions as, yeah. as we wrap up. And, and one of them is, you know, when you think about a day in the life of Vince as a scholar and the things that I'm really chasing right now, what, what, what does that look like? Yeah. I actually was recently also asked this by somebody else about, like, what, what's a day in the life? Um, and I had to pause because, you know, of course, right, you know, COVID and so many other things are, are influencing what that looks like. But even outside of that and before that, um, one of the things that, that I, I kind of suddenly realized as I contemplated this question is that um, for me, a day in a life is it's atypical in that, like, my days are just not the same, um, you know, because I have 
Um, there's so many aspects of what I do, and it would be impossible to create a regime for it. You sure. Know? And so, um, so my my life takes me into elements of uh, traveling around the state, you know, for research or for um, uh, professional development or or collaborative meetings. Um, it involves on campus. Sometimes I'm teaching PhD courses at night. Or sometimes I'm teaching teachers of color who are in the field, you know, and so we're meeting offsite or virtually online. Um, and those happen all different times of day. Sometimes I'm visiting students in classrooms. Uh, and a lot of student teachers, once they graduate, you know, we stay connected. We have a, a really strong alumni network. And so um, sometimes I get a text and everything, everything stops because somebody's got a problem or an issue or something to celebrate and, and that requires the attention. But sometimes I'm, I'm writing, you know, and I do a lot of collaborative work with people both on campus and off campus too. And so a lot of times it's, it's moving around to find where, where they are and, you know, where those good places are and, um, and, you know, connecting there, um, you know, being who I am, usually that's over food or, you know, over drink. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, like a lot of good stuff happens in a lot of like very ordinary places, I think. You know, this, this dynamism you're, you're describing here really is what adds vitality to our professions and our lives to me. It's, it's you know, I've been coming here for 25 years. I haven't been bored. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anything but. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's, you really describe it so well. Thanks for that. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So two questions that are sort of structural, right? So you find yourself as a faculty member and colleague in, in this College of Health and Human Sciences. What speaks to you about being a member of that particular community? Yeah. Um, I, I really dig it, uh, because, um, College of Health and Human Sciences has what, what I would call from one perspective, an eclectic gathering of discipline. Mm -hmm. From another perspective, I would call it a a collection of focal areas that, that share some like really important common themes around humanism, you know? What I, what I really appreciate about that is that it makes it very normal to be interdisciplinary and to be across content or to be outside of the box. So you don't have to, when you're thinking about things, you don't have to get everybody on board with, with you know, not doing what this whole, you know, everyone in this building is doing, right? We're, 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 all, we're all already there. I, I, I actually experienced that the most in my graduate courses. So I have I have students in my courses. I have advisees, um, and I'm, I'm on um, committees of students who are investigating um, the confluences of um, race or gender um, and the historical context of that with regards to fashion and design, construction, construction management, you know, higher learn, higher education, mm-hmm. higher learning, um, occupational therapy, right? You know, and being able to very easily engage in those kinds of, um, you know, I guess sort of cross-platform, cross-department types of activities easily and in ways that people aren't like, well, that's weird, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, that's that, I think that's really meaningful, and I, I dig it. You know, I like it. It's fun not to get the standard stay-in-your-lane-buddy routine. Oh, yeah. You know, you've used the phrase confluence so often. I think that really describes the <laughs> lanes merge. That's yes. the way life is, right? Yeah. Yes. So I love it. That's great. The, the next layer up is, is CSU, of course. And CSU uh, proudly puts forward, and I, I think really tries hard to embody this notion of a, of a land grant. Yeah. So what does that mean to you? Yeah. I kind of really lean into this land grant thing. Um, when, when I decided to 
accept the invitation to work here. That was that was a part of it. And so to me, as as a researcher, I'm drawn to these tensions. I think there's so much opportunity to learn in the tension and the tension that exists behind being um, a land grant institution with history with a history just like every every other land grant institution in this country of being situated on stolen land and being charged to be connective to community and and when that charge happened while well, also clearly not being connected to everyone in the community right mm-hmm. and and now we're in a place in space where where there's some reckoning that that's happening with that history but also we continue to have the charge to live up to the land grant mission and and that's a tension and to me one is that the land grant mission is one of the one of the justifications for me to do my work without being questioned mm. right is that i'm not you know i i don't have to do this work where there's the most money i don't have to do this work just on this campus like i'm supposed to be serving this region and so i take that very seriously a lot of my work takes me outside of i should do very little work in fort collins you know a lot of my work takes me outside and i service the region and i take that very seriously and it also it also means that um, it's not like other institutions where they might be a little bit more free to ignore the histories. We're not, and so I I really like the fact that we have to reckon with this all the time. And uh, there's like I said to me I'm, I'm I'm drawn to those those places and spaces because that's that's where the most of the learning happens. You know I'm into it and I, and I'm I'm into its complexities and it's and it's um, you know, even at times there's some, there's like hypocrisies to it. There's, there's tensions. Um, and there's also really amazing stuff that happens because of it. And, and I kind of dig it, you know, the ways in which we're connected is, you know, to community is pretty powerful. Yes. And, you know, I, I really like, I like driving around the state and seeing extension CSU extension offices all mm-hmm. over the place, you know, where I live, you know, I, I go down, I got in the middle of nowhere down South. I mean, what I think what a lot of people are concerned in the middle of nowhere, the people down there don't, but, sure, you, sure. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. but the, you know, it, it, you see those extension offices down there and, and see that, um, that folks on there are, are, you know, very imperfectly trying to make, make that land grant mission into fruition. And it means something. Right. I have to tell you, as good as I think these are going to be, they're always better. So <laughs> thanks so much for coming, for being willing to yeah. share. Yeah, I think this is a great idea. This is a really meaningful way to elevate and to create multiple dimensions of what we do as individuals, but also just the whole whole college. You know, like it's this feels timely. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to listen to the rest of season two, as well as our episodes from season one. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.